In the case of Ethiopia, direct diplomacy is critical, and it's going to have to start. It is the week of May 10th, and welcome to episode 79 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, NSI senior fellow Les Munson will be doing a deep dive with Ambassador Cindy Corville, NSI advisory board member and first U.S. ambassador to the African Union. Over a nearly 20-year career in the government, Ambassador Corville served in the Department of State on the National Security Council staff, in the Defense Intelligence Agency, and in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Ambassador, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Les. Thank you so much for having me today. So let's start really big picture, global affairs, uh, the U.S. position geostrategically writ large. I would argue over the last three administrations from President Obama to President Trump and now to President Biden, we've seen a, a kind of slow and steady U.S. withdrawal from the world, whether it was pulling our combat troops out of Iraq in 2011 under President Obama or whether under President Trump, it was the ending endless wars argument and his attempts to pull our troops out of Syria and beginning negotiations for the pullout from Afghanistan with the Taliban. And now President Biden, in fact, uh, acknowledging that we will be pulling our troops out of Afghanistan. So this is a long-term trend and kind of a U.S. pullback from the world. What's your overall reaction to that phenomenon? Okay, that that is the big a strategic worldview. Yes, we have seen this, but you could take us back to Vietnam, uh, the issue of endless wars. So perhaps we have been in this pattern across, as you uh, aptly pointed out, both Democrat and Republican uh, administrations. The challenge is that no matter which party has been in power, the same rules of engagement, going in for the right reasons, no, no question in terms of uh, promoting democracy, uh, stabilizing uh, an unstable region. But the challenge that we continue to be plagued with, what are the key indicators for how you withdraw? And maybe that takes us back into when should you go in? There's no right, wrong answer. Conditions will differ somewhat, whether it's Vietnam or Iraq, Afghanistan, these are the situations where we find ourselves in. I would say, unless there's the political will of the people of the country to move towards peace, it won't matter whether we stay or don't stay. If they have the political will to bring about a peaceful settlement, then we are a welcome addition. But if it's, you know, especially when I look at Afghanistan, uh, you know, Iraq, that situation is so volatile over decades, over before we were there as, as a country. So there are some things you cannot solve alone unless you really want to take it over. And I don't think we want to be in the business of colonization. So it's tough. Um, I, I think the withdrawal probably is necessary. If not now, then when? There is not going to be a good time unless the political will on the ground. I know there is the concern for the many gains that have been made, especially with women and girls on the ground. But unless that population, those diverse ethnic groups really want to move forward, then it is a fight they must be willing to commit to, die for, and go the long run. I know it sounds a little cold. Well, you got to make tough decisions in this business. Let's focus a little bit on uh, what we're here to talk about for the most part, which is sub-Saharan Africa and the, the continent generally, U.S. relationship with Africa. How should we be thinking about 
the way the U.S. conducts itself vis-a-vis African governments in this environment where we are having to make tough decisions about where we can commit resources and where we can't. We kind of have this rising challenge with China that's focusing our efforts a little bit more than they've been focused in the past, perhaps. How do we make the trade-offs necessary to keep alive those very important relationships we have with African governments? Well, I'm hoping that the Biden administration will reverse some of the Trump decisions. That's my personal one. Uh, The reduction of our engagement uh, in Djibouti, I think, is not advisable at all. Uh, The French were there first and they were grandfathered in, but that was during colonial times. Uh, During uh, Bush 43 administration, the decision to put HOA, the expeditionary base there, was critical, not just for Africa, but for a Middle East engagement. And so at that time, it was seen as controversial, uh, mostly by the foreign press and to some extent by some African countries. Uh, What was important there is that it now gave a balance, a foothold in the region. Not to have, we made it a temporary base, which we said expeditionary. So that does mean we could pull out at any time. But I think it is in our best interest. And I think the Djibouti was very welcoming. The challenge was for the African Union, because they had said in the post-colonial times, there would be no external military uh, bases of any sort on the continent. So they negotiated with us. Now, our PR could have been better. So I think we deserve a hit on that side. But what it did do was to allow us to do what we were already doing, uh, training peacekeeping troops in Africa, put us closer to Ethiopia with the African Union and the peacekeeping forces there. So this truly was not a threat to the continent. China followed through. I heard very little press on China's building a base there. And they built a base, a permanent base. Uh, we still are in containers. We might have a few primary structures there at best, but they're looking to expand. So I see the real threat as China. The French need us there equally as much to balance out the Chinese. And if we lose a presence, I suspect Russia won't be far behind. So this is both peacekeeping and peace enforcement. Uh, It also, we have depots throughout the continent where we put supplies for African peacekeepers. So this is, you know, most African countries cannot afford to sustain their peacekeepers in the country and to train and equip. So we provide a very critical and strategic service. Uh, African troops have served all over the world as peacekeepers. And it was uh, in, I think, 2004, 2005, I apologize, the the years have passed, uh, that the U.S. airlifted Rwandan African Union peacekeepers and also, you know, into Darfur. So we've played a critical, critical role. What's the framework that you think most policymakers in the national security space should be using for thinking about African affairs? Is is it, a, is it a place where we should mostly be concerned about challenges we have with, say, China or uh, global terror networks? Is it a place where we should be seeking economic opportunities with some really dynamic, growing national economies? Is it, is it the humanitarian concern that does crop up uh, with a certain frequency in the African region? Or is it all of those? What's the, what's the framework policymakers should be adopting? 
I think it should be more holistic, all of it. During the Bush 43 administration, we made an attempt. It wasn't easy because the way of thinking was that it's a humanitarian, it's a disaster situation, it's, you know, the coups uh, and military. And we started to turn that corner and the Obama administration continued that with the political, economic, you invest in the country. So moving forward on democracy, uh, not as um, hitting them over the head, but having the partnership discussion. I think one of the things that many African leaders during that time with Bush said that he was respectful. He did not talk down to them. He said, this is what we can do. The choice is yours. The rest of it, you know, the 80% you have to live. And so the Chinese also do a very good job of that, at least in public. They are very respectful. Now, as some African heads of states, you know, in confidence said, behind the door, they might be hitting you over the head. But at least publicly, they showed you the respect. And I think that is first and foremost. And saying where we can't go and what we won't do, clearly setting out our expectations for engagement. So political engagement, economic, I think we have to go back to the Clintons with AGOA, which each administration has continued, fundamentally important. I th- the Millennium Challenge uh, a Corporation under the Bush administration set a positive tone for, given our political structures, we couldn't go build a bridge you know, anywhere in the world, in some foreign countries. But this mechanism allowed them to compete. They had to meet the criteria for being politically sound or moving in the direction. Uh, Economics, they had to give a business package and accountability. The challenge with, no pun intended on the MCA, was that we didn't have enough money. Because even the people who were less than democratic and and less than, you know, uh, engaging with their people in a positive light suddenly said, you mean if I took these steps, there were some positive economic engagement? And so I think that program, along with AID, so let AID do what it does best with the humanitarian issues the disaster relief, encouraging people, you know, on multiple fronts and engagement, but let the business side be the plussing up of MCA. And that was a leverage not just used in Africa, but across other third world countries. What do you think is the best way the Biden administration can deal with the challenge of China? As you point out, China's pretty good at Uh, diplomacy in public. The president of China, Xi Jinping, has spent some time with African leaders more so than our head of state has, both during this administration and the last one, uh, and maybe even the previous one. China makes a real effort to promote those relationships. But at the economic level, there's this debt trap problem. There's a, uh, a tolerance, maybe even an encouragement of corruption that is kind of anathema to us. What's our best approach from State Department, uh, Commerce Department, Treasury, our business community that we can make to African nations while China is kind of offering this alternative model to them? I think uh, that's a very good question. Working as a united front, uh, most certainly in this particular situation, State Department has to take the fundamental lead for the political and diplomatic engagement. I think also working in lockstep with USTR, Uh, with commerce, with treasury, uh, 
let's go back to Bush 43. There was debt forgiveness. Uh, President Bush was really clear. Uh, this is probably a one-time thing uh, for you. So here is where, when you have those National Security Council meetings, starting at the assistant secretary level, you lay out a strategic plan and you coordinate. Every last cabinet member needs to be on that continent. Every last one went under Bush 43. There was a presence. So the commitment of President Biden is fundamentally important across the board at the top. If he signals to his cabinet members, this is a priority, it will be. So if political can't happen without economic engagement, uh, Africa command, also fundamentally important. That kind of engagement allows countries to see, whoa, it's not a one issue relationship that you're coming to us. It's not a one time because you need us and you're gone. Those are the things that I think we find, you know, fundamentally uh, critical for a, a solid relationship. So this is how you really have to do it to make it work and to allow at multiple levels within the administration, not just depending on the secretaries, the heads of the agencies, but on the way down to your assistant secretary of state is fundamentally important. And I know that the Biden administration has nominated someone, so she should be coming up and it's a career diplomat. I think that's a great move. So that's the positive. But those individuals are the ones who make sure that you operationalize the strategy. So let's talk about a specific uh, challenge that we have right now on the continent. And it's the insurgency we're seeing in northern Mozambique with apparently Islamic rebels, uh, perhaps affiliated with ISIS or the Islamic State, uh, attacking civilians, attacking the workers from energy companies that are there to exploit the resources, the, the huge liquid natural gas resources off the coast of Mozambique. A lot of people have been killed. Uh, there's linkages to these larger terrorist networks. What can the U.S. do and what should the U.S. be doing to help a country like Mozambique in this situation? First step with that, and I mean, it, it really is a dire situation uh, in a country that has been hit by so many natural disasters and other things and lacks the infrastructure, still legacies of the, you know, the civil war uh, that took place in Mozambique. First, I would say consult with the regional leaders. Uh, you know, that's key. You don't just walk in to someone's country. See where the leadership is, what they need. Uh, definitely would have conversations with the South African leadership at this time. Uh, Tanzania as well. Look at the region. You have SADC is critical. And when those decision makers can tell you this is what's going on on the ground, this is what we need, and then we can advise. So if you don't start with President Biden, then the Secretary of State Blinken makes that call uh, to, to the head of state uh, to get the situ what the situation is on the ground, come back to the president. Boots on the ground, that's a last resort. Boots on the ground to do what? What's your end goal? If you don't know your end goal, just like we were talking about Afghanistan and Vietnam, how, do, how are you going to have an exit point? So, you know, my DOD experience tells me, you know, you do that calendar backwards. So you plan how you're going to exit that. And then you know how you're going to go in and what happens. So that is, is fundamentally important. Uh, the question is the capability of the Mozambican 
both national security forces on the ground is fairly weak, uh, but that could lead to a more violent situation than not. Uh, does that leadership of the rebel group really have an agenda? Is it monetary only or at political gains? So there are a lot of factors at play. So I would say sex state takes the lead for right now, get a read of what's going on, consult with Africa Command, then lay out to President Biden and Vice President Harris what the situation is and what they see as options. There's also going to have to be an economic component. So I would say uh, Treasury and Commerce need to be at the room, a review where they are in AGOA or MCA if they're in there, at, because it's been a while since I've looked at that. So I think those are fundamentally important. So you were our first ambassador to the African Union. You've got great experience dealing with uh, regional organizations and, and perhaps even sub-regional organizations. Should we uh, be looking to the AU or to the Southern Africa Development Community, SADC, to play a leading role here? Can, is, this, is this possibly a, a dilemma that can be answered by folks in the region or in the sub-region? Um, I think a combination of the two. I'm sure the AU has been consulted. There's a little bit of a, an issue in Ethiopia. <laughs> I was going to get to that next. <laughs> You know, because the AU is located in Ethiopia. So, you know, the AU is a guest of the Ethiopian government. So, of course, I think Ethiopia would be most comfortable with focusing on Mozambique. But by the same, you know, uh, situation has to be, say, what's taking place in the Tigrayan province. I think AU is going to be a little, leadership is going to be a little bit more cautious right now. So they might defer to SADC. I think this is also a good time for the EU, even with COVID. And, and then we have COVID. So we haven't brought in that, you know, uh, global issue. Uh, so that would also impact how you go into areas and safety. So I would say SADC, I would say um, Sex State Blinken reach out to our EU counterparts and have a discussion there. I pull China in, as they say, hug them tight. Don't let them sit back. You know, we did that with Darfur. They didn't want to do anything. We said, oh, no, no, no. You want to engage with the Sudanese? Then you need to engage in peacekeeping. And they gave a peacekeeping force. So rather than not have China in the room, perhaps being at odds with you, I would pull them into room once we are clear what we want to do. Interesting. Let's go to Ethiopia and talk about what's going on there. Um, I'm old enough to remember when conflict in Ethiopia led to really massive humanitarian concerns. The news out of Tigray, uh, and we're not getting terrific reports, but we're seeing some news. It seems very bad. There's atrocities happening. Uh, this conflict may be worse than is uh, immediately apparent. What are what are your concerns about the fundamental stability of Ethiopia? And is there a greater role here for the U.S. Uh, either in diplomacy or something beyond diplomacy? Oh, you're right. Uh, it is a dire situation. Um, some are using the genocide word for the situation going on there. Uh, there is most certainly indiscriminate killing on large levels. Uh, the level of displacement of people, both as IDPs, you know, internally displaced people, most of them are refugees because they have to get out. The irony is we're sending refugees to Sudan, you know, <laughs> who's still dealing with its own issues, both north and south, you know, with, with, and from Darfur. So 
in the case of um, Ethiopia, direct diplomacy is critical and it's going to have to start. And, and I know that President Biden has already sent an envoy out, which, you know, fantastic. But the response, I must admit, I was a bit taken aback uh, at Abe uh, as the prime minister. I met him when he did his initial tour to the United States, and it seemed promising and optimistic. Uh, actually, I thought he would have been in more danger of being overthrown uh, because I wasn't sure he had the political backing. Charismatic leader, uh, very you know intellectually sharp, but it, there seems to have been, a, for lack of a better way to phrase it, a hidden agenda. And granted, the Tigrayans had ruled for what over twenty some years, and as a minority group, had maintained power. But what I find not just um, disconcerting about what's going on in the Tigrayan region is the fact that he wants to centralize the government. That to me is a major indicator of the direction this country is going, and that is not in its best interest. That may overwhelmingly be your Chinese influence. I don't know. But I think this is strictly coming out of Ethiopia itself. And to hear people calling for genocide uh, of the non-Tigrayans, I am, I truly am horrified. So they are a major political anchor in the region, which is not such a great anchor right now. So instability can spread if Ethiopia falls into disarray. Uh, Kenya buttresses right next to it, Tanzania. None of those, either of those countries have the military force comparable to Ethiopia. So that's important. Then you have the dam situation with Egypt. Uh, Let's put it this way. The neighborhood looks really bad right now and you can't pick up and move. And so in this given situation, I, I am concerned with the centralization of power into the hands of this particular leader now, given the engagement. Now, the Tigrayans, perhaps their reaction to losing power, I mean, on the one hand, you can say, I understand, Uh, you you can do it your resources. In our federalist system, we would be very upset if, you know, Virginia lost control of its revenue. So there is some legitimate concern. But if you have to take it back to after the fall of the communist regime with Mengistu, you divided a country based on ethnic affiliation and identity. That, to me, as the outsider, was a recipe for, you know, conflict at some point in time over who has power and who doesn't have power. So, you know, good thing we have the uh, forces in Djibouti. I can't see us going in militarily because Ethiopia is a military partner. So in this particular case, uh, diplomacy is going to be the fundamental thing, the economic engagement. But in the last four years, we weren't watching. The names that uh, the former president uh, used to refer to African countries uh, was shameful, disrespectful. Uh, lack of diplomacy, and we could go on and on. So the good news is that African leaders as a whole, even the most authoritarian ones, are more understanding that we have power shifts and changes on a regular basis. So they sort of wait us out. 
until reasoning can come back in. And I think we have a very reasonable president with a vision who has so much on his plate right now, uh, but that we cannot afford to maintain, if not return to what we had before in the last four years at best. Ambassador, I'd like to ask you about uh, maybe a slightly more obscure issue, which is what's going on in Chad right now. We saw President Debbie uh, was killed in combat several days ago. His son has taken over power in that country. President Macron of France notably was there for his installation as president. Can you talk a little bit for our listenership about Chad? What's going on there? Why is this country important strategically for France and for the United States? Oh, yes. Uh, I actually did uh, meet with Debbie on a couple of occasions during my tenure in in government. Uh, Debbie's been a rebel leader all along. Uh, so there, in that sense, there's no surprises. The surprise is that he survived as long as he did, you know, and I'm not speaking ill of him. I'm just saying that he was constantly battling to maintain his position of power. So the factions have always existed. Uh, I wasn't surprised at how he died either. Uh, you know, the movement back and forth. So Chad, you know, for the, for the French is a former colony. So there's a sense of loyalty there. Uh, there. There are resources, but you have basically a country with very little infrastructure, uh, a large amount of, of poverty across the board, a country much like um, Libya, who did not invest in its people or the infrastructure to move its country forward with all the resources you have. So weak leadership, and maybe strong men in terms of militarily, but weak in terms of vision of where your country could be. There's only so much the outside world can do. The ultimate responsibility is on the people and the leadership. And again, I'm not trying to sound cold. Uh, You can't have someone come in and prop you up without a cost and a high price tag. And they can't stay forever. China is much more extractive. They will take out what they need and leave you right there. And this is one of those things, uh, both President uh, Bush and Obama warned that, you know, if we give you debt relief and you go and incur debt, then you've missed the opportunity. And that's what Millennium Challenge was supposed to come in and do and allow you to keep moving forward. We need to continue to work closely with the African Development Bank. Fundamentally important. That's a a dynamic relationship for the U.S. and its ability to influence investment on the continent. So working again with the regionals. But Chad is definitely going to be a work in progress. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not so sure about Debbie's son. To be perfectly honest, you know, these dynasties have passed from one to the other, you know, with out elections, and and we know our issues about elections here. So we know they're imperfect. And perhaps what has happened in this country most recently is a really good lesson learned for our African counterparts, that democracy is a work in progress, that it is extremely fragile, and that the citizens have to own it. And you get for lack of a better thing, the government you deserve if you do not invest in it. 
Amen. Let me ask you one more question before I uh, throw it to our producer Grant for the for the last question of the interview, and that's uh, I'd love your reaction to the news out of Tanzania. Uh, and I, I certainly don't want to speak ill of the dead, but President Magufuli did not leave a terrific record in Tanzania, in my opinion. He was had a, a terrible record on the human rights front. He wasn't treating COVID scientifically or seriously. Uh, it's possible he paid a price for that with his own life. And now he's been replaced by Samia Hassan, who is the first female president of Tanzania. Uh, she seems to be a real breath of fresh air uh, for the country and really for the whole region. Can you talk to us about the lessons we can learn about uh, some of the real leadership and the leaders that have been produced in Africa? Well, you know, that that's a, a challenging question. I mean, we, they've had some fabulous leaders of Bif- for this, you had Kikwete, which was really an outstanding, you know, president um, who was very much into understanding the facts, the situations, uh, the strategic analysis, looking to do the best uh, for for his people and engaging across party lines. Uh, I was there for his uh, inauguration and to see the passing of the torch in such a peaceful way was, you know, you said, now this is the future, but like in any democracy and you can be, you know, elected and uh, the people choose. And so I think when we look at Tanzania, it almost mirrors our own situation in the past four years of how you can change hands with leadership. And sometimes as human beings, we have to go through, you take for granted what you have and think the system will keep rolling. I think President Hassan is most certainly an outstanding, you know, successor. Uh, Challenges she faced are great because she has to now attempt to repair. I don't know if you can undo what has been done, but to repair. So she will be judged, I think, quite uh, severely in many cases, one as a woman. Uh, but two, you know, what she inherited, she may not have all the means she needs. So I think the United States, um, the UN, most certainly, and the EU and others could come together and say, how can we support the success of her presidency that will ensure the success uh, of the country? The people themselves have to support her as critical. So I'm optimistic Uh, with her. But then you've got COVID. And we tend not to talk about that very much. And as you pointed out, the vaccines have been largely uh, secundered by the Western world. And so if we don't deal with this continent uh, and being helpful, just as we did with HIV AIDS, just as we did with Ebola, we must do with COVID uh, and show that that leadership. So I think most certainly both state and AID uh, can be critical and most certainly the CDC and others critically important so that they can go about the business of governing and economic development. But if you've got COVID there, we don't know what's going on in the rural sectors of some of these countries. We don't know how much life is lost. And, you know, these people aren't just expendable. So a great nation, and we are a great nation who sometimes slips and stumbles, but gets back up. These are things we can do without undermining our own interests at home. Well said. Couldn't agree more. Grant, you've got the last question, sir. 
Professor Corville, thanks so much for, for joining us. I, I just wanted to follow up sort of on democracy elsewhere on the continent. So it's been about 10 years since the Arab Spring, which started in Tunisia and spread across the Maghreb. Um, however, it seems safe to say at this point that the spring failed to achieve the democratic dream uh, for a lot of those countries. What do you see as the future prospects for democracy in North Africa? Challenging. You all were more optimistic about the Arab Spring than I was. But, <laughs> so I'm going to be honest. So I'm probably out there by myself. I think the Western world wanted the Arab Spring to be revolutionary. And, and I think in Tunisia, it was a major shift. Uh, conditions were ripe for change in, in, in Tunisia, uh, but political change without economic viability. Uh, it, you know, democracy needs a, a, a solid economic base, and most of these countries don't have that. In Egypt, uh, you know, it was so strategic with uh, Mubarak and others and how they maneuvered, because in Egypt, we have seen a constant turnover of generals waiting to take their turn. And Mubarak wanted his son, and it was going like, not happening, said the other generals. So I think what was savvy, I didn't agree with it, but what was savvy of the Egyptian generals was that they sat back, as I said, they took off the uniform, put on the blue coat, and put the khakis on, as, as we sometimes talk about at the Pentagon, when you shift in positions. And they understood enough to play to the audience. Uh, in terms of Libya, you know, there was no infrastructure. You know, with Les and I talking about Chad, very much the same situations there. No infrastructure. Uh, Gaddafi purposely uh, didn't want to create a real army, didn't want to create uh, a political infrastructure and economic structure. So the one that actually was the most stable, ironically, was Algeria. Now that needed to change too. So I'm, I'm more optimistic about Algeria, even with its challenges. I think Tunisia, as they said, can move forward. Um, Libya, failed state. Chad on the verge of being a failed state. And to go back to the region, uh, Central Africa Republic, failed state. So Arab Spring it got publicized in a way and televised that you didn't have the base of support at the bottom to sustain, nor the political will of the leadership. So without the political will of the leadership to make that kind of change, we put, we, the royal we, the Western world, put many very strong and committed, you know, activists in a very vulnerable position because social media, you know, a great tool can also be turned around and who controls it? Great example of that is in Ethiopia with the Tigrayans. The Ethiopian government has severed all communication and access. So while the technology has advanced, who controls the technology has remained the same in many of these countries. So I'm not saying it isn't possible. I'm just saying we have to be careful how we support people. Uh, because at the end of the day, they're going to give their lives for this situation. We have the ability to walk away. They don't. Ambassador Cindy Corville, thank you very much for being with us on Fault Lines. My pleasure, Les, so much. And, and, and thank you to Grant as well. 
that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnetsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Les Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.